All right, Phil, welcome to the Blockhouse Podcast, episode 232. We're really getting up there. Uh, how you doing today, ma'am? I'm not doing too bad, Brandon. It's been a long day here in Hong Kong where it's what, 9 o'clock at night, but hanging in there. How's it going in Hong Kong? Good? Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting place to be at the moment. Very, very interesting place to be. Um, obviously, we're having some fun with uh, COVID. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, if you swing it back to the blockchain industry, Hong Kong is one of the really exciting centers. There's a lot happening here, um, mm-hmm. a lot of entrepreneurialism in blockchain and the various offshoots from that sort of core idea. So it's a fun place to be, even though it's a bit difficult to travel anywhere from here at the moment. Yeah, maybe we can open a bit about that. Um, tell me a bit about Hong Kong. Is I, I know that it's a good place for crypto innovation and businesses and whatnot, but you don't hear about it as often as you think. Um, so what's it like doing business there and working? Um, uh, all uh, uh, many people listening um, obviously might be aware of some of the changes that Hong Kong has undergone in the past 25 years. But, uh, you know, from purely non-political business point of view, um, Hong Kong is actually a, re- it's a very easy place to start a company. Um, you cannot complain about the territory that has no uh, only taxes once in the chain. So, for example, uh, it may tax profits, but it doesn't tax dividends, uh, has no capital gains tax, which for people who buy and sell crypto is very handy. Um, uh, I understand people in the United States are, are in tax season at the moment, and um, uh, Twitter is replete with stories of horror as people try and work out you know uh, what a profit is but hong kong doesn't have any of that um and taxes are low the uh, profits tax on a company is uh, basically a flat 16 and a half percent so from a business environment point of view it's very low barriers to entry to actually start a business so from a, a an entrepreneurial point of view hong kong is still um, a fantastic place to be uh, and to and, and to start a business and, and, and very easy from a sort of legal and administrative load. Um, so yeah, no, it's and I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of people have have moved into this business here because obviously um, uh, on chain assets and and things like uh, tax calculations can be tricky. I'm told. Mm-hmm. Where, where are you from? Did you relocate there? Um, or just for work? Do you live there full time? No, uh, I'm. Uh, I moved to. Uh, I'm originally from the UK. I moved to Hong Kong uh, twenty uh, six years ago. I came here with hair. You can see what happened. Um, and I actually moved to uh, New York in nineteen ninety nine. I was part of the dot com boom there, and then I uh, uh, went through the dot com bust or the dot bust and came back to Hong Kong with my tail between my legs and not as wealthy as I thought I might be when we entered the mm-hmm. thing. And uh, so this is my sort of second big tech um, cycle because I said I went through the whole internet thing. Um, I first entered the internet industry um, in 1997. So uh, it's, it's, it's very interesting to go through another cycle of such in- incredible change and to compare the two which uh, uh, are so similar in many ways, but actually I find to be polar opposite um, in others. Um, uh, the the the, the dot com boom, you know, you had all stupendous amounts of money, VCs falling over themselves to inject 
um, abhorrent sums of money into the weirdest of ideas. Does this sound familiar? Um, and, um, and, you know, so, but what happens, these companies, they did fantastic marketing and PR and they built up huge mailing lists as the, with the arrival of the newsletter. And, but they took, most took too long to work out how to monetize that position. Um, so they're very marketing led, but the productization was poor. And, you know, obviously um, such classic names like pets.com uh, went with uh, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of investment went by the wayside. The interesting thing I found were entering the crypto space and I actually entered quite late um, just two years ago um, after a long career in marketing. And I was last in the travel industry, which was decimated by COVID, hence my change. But what was interesting is that almost instantly as I walked into the crypto space, I saw the complete opposite to what I just described. I saw phenomenal productization, but appalling marketing. Um, you know, there was, you know, people were, I suppose what Steve Jobs would, 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 uh, would call sort of productizing technological advancement as opposed to looking specifically at, uh, at, at customer needs. Because I'm fairly sure if a marketer had been involved, the MetaMask experience would not be what it is, <laughs> what it is today. Um, but the underlying changes are phenomenal. So I think as, as we're able to bring, bring the product and, 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 in, and decrease the load required to start using it, I think you know um, we can start to get the message out, uh, you know, get those messages out about you know, um, you know, ownership of your identity, ownership of of your financial base, etc. So anyway, that's sorry, a little segue there, but uh. yeah, I think there's a lot of a surplus of developers in the space now. Everyone wanting to jump in, but there's not enough people in marketing, maybe in the space. Um, but I'll, that'll change over time. That'll balance out. Um, and I was going to say, you have a beautiful head of hair. Like I, I didn't know that, you know, going to Hong Kong, you know, you were going to lose it. Um, cause I've always wanted to go too, but I'm not ready to lose mine either. Um, no, I think you'd come for a visit. You're safe. Okay. If you can get in, you have to do two weeks in quarantine in the hotel, um, uh, before they'll, mm -hmm. before they'll actually let you, let, let you set foot on, on safe land. But yeah, it, oh, hopefully... you, have to, you have to quarantine when you go there. Oh, absolutely. Um, oh, then I'll pull my own hair out. <laughs> I think if you have, it's, um, you know, we, uh, we, we were doing fine before Omicron. Uh, statistically, our health outcomes were, were, were vastly superior to, uh, to a lot of Western nations. In, you know, we remember SARS um, in sort of 2002. And so people in Hong Kong had no problem or any, there's no political discussion about wearing a mask. And washing your hands frequently it just seems common sense so everybody immediately fell into that without without any argument and with with very tough travel restrictions and 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 you know we kept the number of infections exceptionally low to the point we went like three months earlier this mid last year with no infections at all apart from a couple of imported cases now with omicron what's happened is it's flipped because omicron is so transmissible uh, we have no imported cases but we have this explosion um and so that's causing and, and hong kong very much follows uh the main mainland china's uh policy of this what they call dynamic zero which is to give people some movement but absolutely stamp it out should it rear its head but that's very difficult to do in hong kong because it's so densely packed 
that it's very difficult to really provide separation. And a lot of people live in small apartments, so you know, locking people up at home for a long time is um, you know likely to cause a riot. So uh, you know, it's interesting times. Yeah, I think a lot of these issues would be solved a lot faster if they just let people go outside and get fresh air. Um, <laughs> I don't think we oh, get two years into this. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think the whole thing has been handled very, very poorly by a lot of countries. Um, no, no immunity, no herd immunity, no people being exposed, being sheltered from it. Um, you know, vaccine after vaccine after booster after booster and um, isolation. I don't think those are the right tools. But I mean, that's just my opinion on it. I think that's why it's so aggravated. And two years later, we're still dealing with the same silly issue. Yeah. Anyway, I suppose that could that could be a yeah. bit of a rabbit hole. Maybe we should bring. Yeah, this that, back that, that might be too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, we're talking about COVID, Omicron, hair loss and Hong Kong. Um, yeah. Let's pivot from that and talk about Leprechaun a little bit. Um, <laughs> tell me. <laughs> Tell me about what you guys are doing. I'm, I'm curious, um, how are you guys incorporating and creating this intersection between blockchain and gaming? I know there's a lot of players in the space working on this. Um, what are you guys doing in particular? Um, my favorite question. Um, the, the, uh, we, we, I mean, Leprechaun actually uh, uh, was, um, uh, the idea started kicking around um, in uh, early, uh, towards the beginning of uh, 20, my years right, 2020, and really started. I, I came on board sort of as a marketing advisor in August of, uh, August of 2020. Um, it was founded by um, two people, um, uh, one of whom is Joshua Galloway, who's uh, who is our, uh, our CEO at the moment, and he. He spent 20 years in the mainstream gaming space. So he was actually, a produ if you go back to the 90s, he was a producer at Gathering of Developers or GOG Games on Max Payne. Um, uh, so, you know, he really goes back to the traditional AAA world. And he came out to Hong Kong. He worked on a, a an MMORPG called Shadowbane, which was published by Ubisoft in the West and uh, the company he co-founded with Harry Miller. Uh, one of the founders of God Games in Hong Kong. Uh, uh, that was around 2001. Um, uh, then he started his own mobile business, and so he went through uh, main uh, AAA to mobile, and then and, and then casual games, and then went into blockchain VCing and, and spent four years in blockchain. So a lot of what we're doing actually came from his head um, because he'd seen the two, and and what before this blockchain games thing which is happening right now exploded so we're talking you know back as a year a year and a half ago from now we were talking about what happens when the behemoth of the video games industry truly comes into the contact with the um with the nascent blockchain industry and we were looking at things such as the player-owned economy forget all the play to earn nomenclature um, but this simple fact that it's i use world of warcraft as an example it's the easiest example because everything has an analog world of warcraft if it was built today could be built with the underlying uh, structure being best, built based on blockchain in your inventory is a wallet your um, your in-game currency is a token your um, uh, special items and power-ups are NFTs of a sword. Although when there's twenty, when there's the same the same number of swords of Damocles for the same number of players in the game, you can argue about that. Um, 
sort of uh, tokenized NFTs. And then you have uh, marketplaces. In World of Warcraft, you can go into the, the auction houses, in, which are in-game. And the marketplace concept, of course, is now very familiar to anyone who uses blockchain. Everything has parallel. <clears throat> the simple difference that we were looking at was in the current crop of games, community-type games, it's a publisher-owned economy. You don't actually own anything. And in fact, any sort of commercial activity out beyond your endeavors in the game can often get you booted. Um, in the height of World of Warcraft, there was there were constant stories and things like GameSpot about people who had had their accounts nixed because they crossed some um, strange rule about 17 pages into the uh, terms and conditions that they hadn't read when they signed up to play the game. <clears throat> this what we're talking about is how the blockchain enables a simple but fundamentally transformative change from the publisher-owned economy to the player-owned economy. You own, or as Riddick, as, as that guy in Riddick, the Riddick the movie would say, you uh, you own what you kill. Um, you know, it's yours. No one can take it away from you, and then you can monetize it outside. But that simple concept leads to many things. It completely transforms the concept of a guild. It can, you know, it 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 changes it changes the the relationship that players have with the games that they play, and so that was really our starting point. How does that happen? Now we were talking about this. And if anyone wants to go through our medium, we they can we can back this up. We were talking about this nine months before this sudden explosion, uh, blockchain games, um, and the play to earn space. But what's happening there is not what we were trying to say. Um, we're we attract game companies make games first and for us there is a there's a flaw with the idea that you start a game by selling 10,000 player characters now what does the 10,000 of first person do um or that you ha you pre-sell the token for a game and there's like 100 million tokens well when World of Warcraft kicked off, there were no players, and there were no, there was therefore no money. And the first money was created when the first player killed the first monster. That's a gross oversimplification, but um, you understand the point. The more people play, the more, the more time more people spend playing, the more money's created, sort of mining by playing. And yet, for the people, for all those people who've hit level, God knows what what they walk into the auction house and they see all the legendary stuff and they go how many years of grinding would it take for me to buy for me to be able to buy that and when you when you have that situation you have scarcity when you have scarcity you have an economy so um from from our point of view uh, we we right now we have a situation where the blockchain industry has adopted gaming as an on-ramp to nft and token sales what we're about to bring it home is what happens when the actual gaming industry adopts blockchain to create games with more player utility. And everything we're working on is, is not, not everything that needs for that to happen has been invented yet. And what we're working on is all the bits and pieces that would make that possible. I'll give you one example. Um, if you've got, Blockchain is your base layer, 
Um, one of the things that we're very familiar now is DeFi, which is a whole application stack that sits on top of the blockchain. We don't we don't use terms like GameFi. Game finance is a nonsensical term to us, um, and we don't we don't think that DeFi changes games. The idea that every time you kill a monster, MetaMask pops up when you try and loot its body and says, "I'll be twenty dollars, please," and come back in fifteen minutes. That's not a good user experience. You can't shoehorn DeFi into a good gaming UX experience. So what we're working on is from the blockchain base, the concept of immutable ownership, a technology stack that includes all the things that you can think of, wallets, token management, um, uh, 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 marketplaces, uh, uh, NFTs and scalable NFTs but done in a way in which they can be integrated in game development, either on the web stack or in things like the Unity or Unreal 3D engine. But we're trying to reimagine it from the layer of the blockchain, not shoehorn DeFi into the game space. And that's what we mean by the difference between blockchain adopting uh, gaming and the gaming industry adopting blockchain. Got it. That's actually an interesting take on it. I, I like that approach. Um, what are some of the things in particular that you guys are focused on? I, I, met, I heard a few things mentioned like NFTs, uh, this idea of pay to play or sorry, uh, play, play to earn. Um, can you touch on some of those things and what you guys are doing in particular? Well, for us, things like play to earn are stepping stones. Um, mm -hmm. you know, on, on the one hand, I've obviously said that in the long run, we're really interested what happens when 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 an industry, uh, the video games industry, which is very very big, um, really start. You know, uh, there are already we, we've announced a couple, and we can talk about them in a minute if you want, if you like. We're already working with one AAA studio um, that's building an Unreal Five engine survival game. It's got an entire city economy built on the blockchain with trading commodities etc a mobile app mobile app interface so we're actually working on 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 some of these things now in partnership um leprechauns uh leprechauns approach has we we have three three pillars we call them the pillars te and d ted uh technology entertainment and DeFi. the technology side is the capabilities and the knowledge that we're building to be able to create what in the end will become our SDK. We want to be the partner that major video games companies come to to integrate the blockchain component in a way in which promotes the game, not the token. I suppose the extreme version of that is blockchain will have come of age when you don't have to mention blockchain um, because it should be about the app, the experience, etc., not about the underlying technology. People use Evernote because it's a fantastic note-taking app for some, for some people's tastes, not because it uses SQL Lite as its database, nor does Evernote ever mention that in its marketing. So I think that's the maturity stage. Um, so we're building the technology that does it. And all the things I mentioned, and we have three major streams, the web stack, the, uh, uh, the a Unity stack for the Unity engine, and an Unreal stack for the Unreal engine. We basically want to fill that out so that we have... In integratable component in tech, integratable components that you can use that that, web, that large scale game developers use to basically solve that problem in the same way they might go and use Havoc or Blink. <clears throat> um, the 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 second pillar is the entertainment pillar, um, and, and what we've done is we've started creating very light games. They themselves are not to be um, 
uh, well, there's a couple of very heavy major games coming up, but uh, in the beginning, we've created these light, simple games, and they've essentially enabled us to solve various problems. So the first one of the first things we did was we created our own um, Ethereum sidechain. We called it LepraChain. And the principal difference between this and any other uh, uh, sidechain like BSC or Polygon is it doesn't charge gas. Well, it does, but the gas is a meaningless number. And, you know, it's not meant to be a general purpose blockchain. Everyone bring your currencies here. It's mm -hmm. a private chain, and it's meant specifically so that games can build a gas-free backbone. Because one of the frictions to UX is having to ask permission to charge gas. But if you basically make the gas a number that is in the system, um, then, you know, the first thing you do now, some of the games on Leopard Chain, you see zero guai. So that's the first thing. The next thing is a custodial, is a, is a sort of semi-custodial approach to wallets, um, uh, which uh, enables us to not have to ask permission every time we do a transaction. Because again, that would, in a game with a high volume of transactions, with assets moving between inventories, i.e. wallets, it, it's just not playable. So those, those are some of the problems we're solving. The very first game we launched was this really simple Wheel of Fortune type game called The Lucky Wheel. That existed for no other purpose. Some people really enjoy playing it. It, it, it makes about, pulls in about 3 million L3P a month. But um, the main purpose, that was the first time we were able to demonstrate an actual app or DAP running on Leopard Chain. So we go, told you Leopard Chain works. The next thing we launched was a Gachapon machine. And the Gachapon machine basically spits out an NFT every time you crank the handle. Now, <clears throat> I will ask you as you're on the different side of the world, do you know what a Gachapon machine is? Uh, no, tell me. Right. So in Japan, they have these machines that you put your money in and you crank the handle and you get a ball. And you open the ball and there's a prize inside. You'll have oh, seen. You'll have okay, this, yeah. yeah. So they're called, it's called gacha pond. The gacha refers to the sound, the clanking sound, and the pond uh, refers to the sound of the ball hitting the cup when it comes out. That's why it's called gacha pond. So our gacha pond machine spits out NFTs. Every time you play, you win an NFT. <clears throat> but it's not just an NFT, it's a composed NFT, which you then go and claim back. And um, and uh, uh, so one of the problems we had to solve, because no one else had done it, was how do you batch mint composed NFTs? You know, we made it. We made ten thousand NFTs called Chili Bottles, which were will be then integrated into our gaming ecosystem as more as more games are added. But we actually wanted people to win one of those in another NFT that also had some Polygon USDT in it. So the amount would be anything from I think. Uh, 25 cents to 120 dollars um and so we made, made 10,000 nfts then we batch minted 10,000 nfts in a ma matching rarity table that were composed of the underlying asset and some usdt that led to us creating a, pro a product which is in alpha at the moment called the pack generator and that enables anyone that wants to batch mint composed nfts um to basically come and do that and they we, we they put in a, a, a CSV file and it basically follows that. What's really interesting about that is when you compare this to games, if you play something like Assassin's Creed, one of the first thing that many people do is they go to the in-game store and they start buying packs. 
so they might like buy the Valhalla horse pack with with a unique set of uh, armor etc for the horse the pack generator is called that because we view composable nfts as dlc for blockchain where people can download uh, a single nft and and um then claim the contents and they end up with whatever assets are inside the nft in there the actual idea of composing nft is not new but there aren't many people who found a way to batch mint composed nfts with matching rarity tables and it was a problem we had to solve for the gachapon machine but because it actually is such a useful tool for any game company that's using nfts as a distribution mechanism it allows them to send packs of stuff in a single transaction um and uh, so that's why we're commercializing um, that solution into the pack generator. We've actually come up with another product idea, which is a, a utility idea, but I can't announce that yet. Not until not until next week. But anyway, the, to, to get back to make sure I answer your question, the point of all these little games is each one of them gives us an, an extra bits that go into the technology stack that become part of the toolkit, the blockchain. So in other words, each one of our games demonstrates a new feature and sort of by the fall, we should have most of, for the web stack and for Unity, it'll be done. And the partnership we have with Hayabusa, who creating a game called Towers Gate that has been announced. It's an Unreal 5 game. That will give us the Unreal stack. And then we will have the complete set of tools that any video game company would need to integrate blockchain in a way which is about the game and not about MetaMask. Well, you guys seem dialed in. You guys got a lot going on, huh? Um, Tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> have you guys approached any large companies yet or been approached by a large company wanting to integrate blockchain into their existing gaming stack for um, something that's pretty popular in mainstream or that people use often? Uh, yes, I can't, I, I've just, I can't, obviously there's a lot of stuff mm -hmm. which is not ready to be announced yet. I just mentioned sure. one, Hayabusa, that's mm -hmm. actually founded by a guy called Alan Cruz and Alan is the, um, uh, uh former, uh, uh, Ubisoft among others. Um, uh, a very experienced guy in the game industry and uh, <laughs> man knows how to write a game document. Um, so, you know, that's what we're really, really excited about. There's, there's, there's a lot there. Um, the uh, We are in talks with others. As I said, uh, we have people, our founder is 20 years in AAA gaming industry. He pretty much knows everybody in that industry anyway. So we talk to a lot of people. Um, also, uh, uh, we have our, our game lead is, is ex-Zynga. Um, so um, uh, we have a lot of people there. So we do have constant contacts and we do have a lot of people asking privately. A lot of the game industry will not publicly talk about blockchain. Um, and there are two reasons for that. Either they are very concerned from a company point of view, Steam, if you remember a few months ago, cleared off mm -hmm. about 25,000 titles off their platform. Now, the primary reason they, whatever they say, the primary reason they do things like that is they don't want the SEC phoning up saying, why are you promoting products that sell unlicensed securities? Um, and then on the other side of the coin, some companies have announced they're interested to do this. Ubisoft did it, Square Enix did it. And the response that they got was from their players going, why is this crap? You know, why are you doing this? It's all a Ponzi scheme. I'm going to upset lots of people when I say that 
both of these outcomes are entirely the fault of the blockchain industry when you start talking about play to earn etc you're emphasizing the wrong thing gaming companies make games because they're meant to be fun you know you're never going to tell a gaming you know you're never going to tell someone that ships 100 million units or something on playstation that their future is that games are no longer fun they're about grinding and earning money um you know it's it's well then again plenty of rpgs actually are about, are about grinding and earning money maybe it's but you, you have a good point though you do have a good point yeah. they do make it a lot about play to earn uh maybe it should be play to fun um but well, yeah no, you know, mean, games are meant to be fun half of it's marketing half of it's marketing if they act if you actually if you focus on you know the immutable ownership of your things if you talk about building either game game specific or publish publisher specific or allowing open access to for example if you've got two identical sets of armor legendary armor you only need one of them you might want to sell that you know you the difference with it being on blockchain is is you sort of legalize what's saying world of warcraft you can already do in 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 the auction house in the game which is sell it and get some and get a large amount of coin for it um you know i think it, it, it is going to happen because it's the obvious thing to do because when players discover the utility um of these this sort of extra layer of involvement and ownership then they will understand but the way to do that is to do it through the game and people go wow this game's really cool i can do stuff i couldn't do in my previous favorite rpgs or whatever or even simple games of the sort of cafe world um type but not come play this game and earn some money there is an audience for whom that is very that works and a whole new niche has come about you know the sort of blockchain gaming play to earn space is a genuine space worth of already a frighteningly large amount of money i'm not saying it doesn't exist what i'm saying is that isn't the mainstream gaming industry it's a very powerful sector but the mainstream gaming industry is a lot bigger yeah that makes that does make a lot of sense um let me ask you another question what are your thoughts on things in the real world, real world ownership being brought into the gaming world? Because we talk a lot about um, creating value and creating representation of things in the in games, in-game items, uh, profiles, things like that, and using blockchain to create value around that and even take that out of gaming into the real world. But what about bringing things in the real world into games? um there's a few directions i could i could go with that i mean anything um just trying to think what's the first what's the first way to tackle that i mean obviously uh one of the the one of the principal aims of any game well outside of the hyper casual segment who whose entire existence is to actually not be immersive um and you know to give you something to do for five minutes we can easily put it down but if you're if you're i mean i've just been playing um horizon uh, forbidden west on my playstation 5 which mm -hmm. was took me six months to get um and uh, yeah um people come in and go what's that big white tower they don't you know they say, what is that i think That's they forget crazy. they've been sold out for so long people forgot they exist <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a myth but i've been playing that and it's really really good it's i've never had to look up how to solve a puzzle 
on YouTube as often as I have with this game. It does get a bit complex, but um, it is a fantastic game, and I, and, I, and I have become immersed in it. And so the word immersion, um, you know, broadly, you know, is is how much you're in, how much you're invested, how much you're connected. So any opportunity to uh, connect things with the real world. Um, now there is a lot of talk about, for example, um, connect using NFTs to connect real world objects. So, um, you know, you, but one of the things where I think things get really interesting um, with with the real world, if if this is a, an appropriate direction to take it, obviously right now we have the metaverse thing happening, um, and the metaverse I think is at the same say, same stage that the internet was at in say nineteen ninety five. That was the year that Bill Gates, as in Microsoft, said in the future every home, house, and car will have a CD-ROM player in it. Because even Bill Gates thought that the internet, which at the time you accessed with 9.6K dial-up modem and you had to give up your phone line to be online, um, you know, people go, didn't a lot of people didn't have the imagination, including some of our most prominent tech titans, didn't have the imagination to see where the internet would be and actually thought, I don't have any around, I don't use them anymore, actually thought a floppy a, a CD-ROM was the future in his lifetime of information dissemination um how wrong that was and i think the metaverse in its very sort of mixed state it's sort of in what i call the CompuServe aol phase you know where you have all these individual virtual worlds but i think over the next generation we're going to see that completely change but i think actually where the metaverse will really take off is in augmented reality um mixing that uh, virtual layer with the real world i say that for a couple of reasons one there's only so long you can wear a pair of 3d glasses and two um you know you could argue that the meta if the metaverse means that humans can connect irrespective of location there's my metaverse you could argue that philosophically mm -hmm. um but obviously a sort of definition which is coming around now is this concept a concept of a sort of 3d visualization layer that sits on top of the internet. And I can go with that, you know, um, philosophically, I may not agree, but I, I can go with that to keep people happy. Um, but the, what's, we seem to be in a bit of a re reversal because if you're like me and um, had, were using the internet in 1995, I was using a big desktop computer with probably a 386 chip in it. And I was and using dial up and eventually got my first broadband line. And now, uh, uh, half a lifetime later, <clears throat> I have everything that I had on that computer at ridiculously number of times the power. And so I have all the connection I need. And so this idea of, of the virtual world and, v and VR glasses seems to send us backwards in that I'm going to meet my friends in the metaverse. So I need to get home. You know, um, uh, it's bulky. It's, you know, maybe we end up with metaverse cafes like we used to have internet cafes. But I think the real outcome would be where augmented reality comes in, in that some way you can mix the two and you can take it with you. Um, we've seen we've seen a lot of uh, changes with, you know, uh, new glasses and stuff. I mean, the old uh, uh, glasses are getting smaller and smaller and smaller and, and more powerful. So um, I think you can talk about, you know, there are there are. The, damn, the company name won't come to my head. You know, we've seen tie-ups, simple tie-ups, like, for example, a certificate of... The, the whiskey industry is one. 
um, where there, there, there are players trying to move the ownership of casks of whiskey, which funnily enough tend not to travel. They tend to stay where they were made. Um, and using having NFTs and the trading of whiskey can be conducted, conducted on the blockchain using NFTs, um, you know, and the two match up. So, I mean, there's many real world examples of combining the, uh, the digital with the real world. But I think for me, I suppose what my mind went to, even if maybe it wasn't 100 percent what you're asking, is is where sort of a lot of the current trends are going in that people will be able to carry the virtual world with them in the real world. Yeah, I think that's likely where a lot of things are going. It just makes sense because everyone has a smartphone, um, even a lot of places where they don't have enough connectivity, they have a smartphone. So I think that'll be a, yes. an ease of access for people, especially in a lot of different countries. Um, we'll need to start wrapping it up in a few minutes. But before we do, um, tell me. Oh, I'm how sorry. People... I didn't realize we got on so long. I talked too oh, much. Oh, no, no worries. <laughs> I, I even got to. I was really dialed. We're having a signal issue. Oh, I'm so sorry. I think we're having a signal issue. Um, you've frozen. Oops. This is live TV, folks. Oh dear, um, I don't know if you can hear me, Brandon, but you're completely frozen. Can you hear me? Yeah, fine. What happened? I wasn't sure if it was you or me. Uh, oh, I, th I think um, StreamYard told me that something happened on their end and it wasn't our fault. I, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, live anyways. TV, folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, live TV. Um, anyways, tell me how people can learn more about Leprechaun other than just Leprechaun.io. Do you guys have a community, Discord, Telegram, something along those lines? Or do you also have a blog or a Medium page? Where can people go? We, 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 we do um, uh, Leprechaun.io. Our uh, Twitter is at Leprechaun.io. Um, you can find uh, the Leprechaun global community you can search for in Telegram and leprechaun, uh, sorry, discord.gg slash leprechaun. Um, you can find us um, and uh, we would, uh, we welcome all. Perfect. Um, where can people find you? Are you on social media? Are you on 
Twitter or LinkedIn? Uh, uh, I, I, I am, I am indeed. So uh, my Twitter handle is at DeFi Marketer. I can't believe I got that first. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Lucky you, that might be valuable one day. <laughs> um, and uh, yes, yeah, so that's the easiest place to find me. I'm also on LinkedIn. You can search my name. Uh, you should recognize the wonderful Pate. And, um, uh, and then you can find me um, on, well, actually, best not to find me on Telegram. It's people, Telegram is where messages go to die. So um, not, not the best place. But the easiest place to find me is on Twitter. Perfect. And guys, go check out Phil. Go follow and check out Leprechaun and everything they are doing. Make sure to like the video and subscribe. And sorry about the short outage, but we got a lot of good content in this episode. And Phil, thank you so much for coming on and sharing. Um, really insightful um, what you guys are doing, the ideas, uh, the actions that you guys are taking about um, bringing blockchain and gaming together. I think it's a good approach. I like the ideas around... Um, play to earn and kind of batting back against that a little bit because I hear it so much on NFTs and in-world and out-of-world um, value proposi uh, pr propositions and... Propositions, um, yeah, you got yeah. it. <laughs> um, yeah, I thought there was a better word for that, but no. Um, anyways... No, you just need more coffee. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm almost finished with mine. That's the problem. <laughs> anyways, thank you, Phil. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Brandon. I enjoyed that. Thanks very much. Have a good Any day. You too. Bye. Okay, bye-bye.